All right. Welcome, welcome. Hey, all right, let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Yeah, here, take this so that I don't play with it, will you? Chapter 19. It's 10 o'clock. We're doing okay. I'm going to try to get us out of here on time today. How many just have been glad to hear good reports and good time of worship and prayer? Just a great day. I was thinking, I often think this way, but I was thinking this way again this morning in the green room before church praying, and I thought, you know, if I didn't do this, if I, I, for me, I, I don't mean to sound however it's going to sound, but for me, coming to church is kind of different. It's, 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 it's my passion, but it's what I do. I wouldn't, I, I don't know what to do, with, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I didn't. Uh, uh, but I thought, well, what if, what if we moved? What if there was some big change in our life? And I thought, why would I come to church? Why would I want to come to church? And I would never, I wouldn't want to come to a place that just followed a, a recipe or a program that was just about presentation, come and go, and you're done. I want the fresh mist of God's presence. I want people with faith. I want to, I want to, I want to lean into something. I want to wrestle with something. Not, not in terms of, you know, works or striving, but I really want to engage God. So that's why we, 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 we intentionally create white space, almost chaos, on Sunday, because we want to make sure that we have opened ourselves to theophany. We do not want to just come and go and say, I like it was some sort of a, a, a thing to check off of our list. We want to encounter God together. We want to experience the presence of God in worship and in fellowship. And we pray, we believe, we prepare, we, we've got, we, all week long, we are believing God for this. Look at you guys in this room on a football Sunday morning. Wow. Praise God. Good job. Have you found Revelation 19 yet? All right. So Revelation 19, we are almost to the conclusion of the whole book of Revelation. There's only a few more chapters. Uh, and uh, so the Revelation 19, it, it could have been broken down into smaller sections, and, uh, but I don't think we'll do that. We'll, we'll, we'll do the whole chapter, and it's really broken down into two, but really three scenes, uh, three, three movements, if you will. The first one is the hallelujahs. There's, a, there's praise to God for his righteous judgments, particularly his judgment on Babylon. But that is not disconnected from the next scene, the next movement, which is the wedding announcement of the bride and the, the, the announcement that the, the, wedding, that the wedding has come and the bride has made herself ready. And then that is also connected, if you look at it from a broad kind of Jewish history perspective, this is also connected to the third scene, which is the arrival of the bridegroom. So, but, so this, the title this morning is actually, Hallelujah, the King is Coming. Somebody say, the King is Coming. The King is Coming. So let's r- jump right in here. Verses 1 through 5 are the, are the hallelujahs. And here's John. After these things, which was after chapter 17 and 18, the, 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 the tale of the fall of Babylon... After these things, I heard something like the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Well, I thought I was at Heritage. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because, so there's a connection here, because his judgments are true and righteous. I want you to connect that, that the the writer is saying, hallelujah, salvation and praise and glory belong to God because of his judgment. His judgment elicits, it excites, it ignites praise in heaven. 
For he has, this is what he's done, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. So they say, hallelujah, they announce, they, they give praise to God, they announce the judgment, and then they announce praise once again. Now, uh, you remember the harlot here is the, is the spirit the, the, of Babylon, which is the city of man, the arrogance of man, the, the, the licentious, rebellious, uh, violent, oppressive the man organizing himself contrary to the knowledge and will of God in every kind of, of evil thing. A man, man with a shiny appearance, but a corrupt interior. That's the spirit of Babylon. And there will come a time when that thing eventually comes to a complete end. Now, that was two weeks ago. This word hallelujah that we read here in Revelation is interesting because this is the only time that this word occurs in the New Testament. I don't know if you remember, but, but years and years ago when we began the book of Revelation, I told you that, that the book of Revelation historically was often read alongside Old Testament passages because of its, it's so Old Testament-y. It's so rich with the language and flavor of the Old Testament. So this is the first time we see hallelujah in the canon of the New Testament. And it's now, and it's hallelujah is all about God has judged Babylon. We like to think of a hallelujah chorus in the style of, of Handel where hallelujah is the triumphant worship of the reigning Lord. John will come to that eventually. But first there has to be an equally triumphant rejoicing over the downfall of evil at the hand of God. The great harlot corrupted the earth. She shed the blood of God's servants, and she had to be called to account. And she has. Babylon is gone. Verses 1 through 5 actually correspond with chapter 18 and verse 8. Chapter 18 and verse 8 simply says, For this reason, in one day her plagues will come. Pestilence, mourning, and famine. She will be burned up with fire. The Lord God who judges her is strong. The fall of Babylon in chapter 18 is the picture of the eschatological, the end times demise of every proud human institution. Every institution that glories in its accomplishments at the expense of what is right and good. In the end, God's righteousness will prevail. In the end, God's righteousness will prevail. Verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, what do you think they did? What have, they, what have they been doing since we started? That's right. They just keep falling on their faces. They just keep throwing themselves down and worship before God. Wow, here they go again. Judgment. They say, oh, judgment. Well, we better throw ourselves on our face. They, they throw themselves on their face, and they've got thrones, and they never use them. They throw themselves down, and they worship God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Verse, verse 5, and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bond servants, you who fear him great and small. Once again, these eternal kind of mysterious figures join in the same act of worship. Judgment is both a requirement for, uh, both requires God's praise and is an expression of God's praise. This judgment is an expression of, the, of this. God is true and he is righteous. He is true and he is righteous. I want to say it again that 
people uh, re- reject, sometimes resent the idea of judgment, but understand it is an expression of the truth, the reliability, and the righteousness of God. It is something that should ignite our hope that God is just, that He will not let those scales be left imbalanced. You, that, that gives us great hope that there is no one will ever get away with, hide from anything. There, we will all be held to account and evil will be accounted for. Psalm 67 verse 4 tells us that really God's judgment is reason for praise. It says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations of the earth. All right. So there's the hallelujahs. Hallelujah, judgment has been, so the Lord has judged, stay with me, the rhythm here. The Lord has judged what is called the harlot, the city of man. This harlot, who uh, we'll see in a moment again, dressed herself in, in purple and in jewelry, but we're told that inside she was corrupt, okay? So she has a fancy outside, but a corrupt inside, and, and her influence corrupted the nations. But now, listen to verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder. Wow, that's loud. Saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Here's why. You ready? Here's why. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This whole picture is fuel for faith. This whole picture, we need to remember that originally people that are reading this are under, are under oppression and persecution, wondering if they're going to survive. And John paints a picture of a glorious future. This is to inspire our hope, to strengthen our resolve, and to move us to continue to live a, de- de- devote, a devout, faithful Christian life. In biblical times, a marriage involved two major events. In contemporary times, um, a wedding can involve about 17 major events. You have to have the reveal. You have to have the camera. You have to have the photo shoot. You have to have it on social media, right? There's there's about 17 different things we do now. But basically, there were two major events of a wedding ceremony. These were, these, uh, there was a betrothal, and then the wedding. Say that with me, will you please? A betrothal and then the wedding. And these were significant. They were normally separated by a a period of time. You were betrothed, and then there was a time of the wedding. I suppose that you could say, oh, that's kind of like us being engaged and then getting married. It is, but it's far more significant than that. During this time of betrothal, The people who were betrothed were already considered husband and wife. They weren't living together as man and wife, but in covenant, they were already man and wife. This is why we have the Christmas story, that Joseph and Mary's confusion. They were in a state of betrothalness, that that Mary was already his wife uh, legally, but they had not had a wedding ceremony yet. Okay, so and so and this is the, the Hebrew tradition, betrothal 
And then during, a, during that time of betrothal, there's a, there's a covenant relationship that happens. And they live, that couple lives in honor of their future. They identify with who they're going to be. When, when they are betrothed, they begin to identify with their future. They live in honor of who they're going to be. And they live in anticipation of that, but they don't wait to start living like living purely or devotedly or in honor or committed to the other person. They're not waiting till the wedding ceremony to live like they're already in covenant. They live in honor of their future. They live in anticipation of who they're going to be. And that's that entire period. They were considered husband and wife. They lived in honor of their future. Then there came the time for the wedding. The wedding would begin then with a procession. And the procession would begin with the the bride and her party would be at her home where she lived. (laughs) And then there came a time when someone would shout, Behold the bridegroom! Kelemaye! Someone would shout, behold the bridegroom. Then the bridegroom would come with his party in procession to come and get the bride and her party. Then they would all turn around and go back to his house, and there would be a feast that would last for a week. That's a party. And Revelation just said, let us rejoice and be glad because the time has come. John sees that the time of betrothal is coming to an end and there will be a time when the wedding ceremony will begin. By analogy, of course, you've all picked it up because I've laid it out there pretty thick. That the church has been espoused to Christ by faith. And we now await the coming of Christ. We live in honor of our future. We are are living now in anticipation of who we're going to be. And we act now like we're going to be then. (laughs) And we are waiting for something. We are waiting for the announcement when the bridegroom will come with his crew to return with us and bring us to heaven to be with him forever. Now, in the meanwhile, here we saw something here. In the meanwhile, in verse 8, we read that the bride, she adorns herself with righteous acts, which were, this is cool, she adorns herself with righteous acts that were given to her to wear. So she adorns herself with what was given to her. (laughs) So this is not her striving or looking. She didn't go out and buy these garments herself. Come on, somebody. No, no, come on. I'm looking for somebody who can understand what we're saying. She didn't go out and buy these things herself. They were given to her, but she still chose to put them on. She on, she, She chose to put on garments that were purchased for her. Garments of righteousness. By, by, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And God, you are God's workmanship prepared. And to, prepared. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared in advance for you to do. 
He's coming for a bride who is clothed in, in clean and white linen that are dressed in, dressed in righteous acts. Now you compare that to Babylon. Babylon who was clothed in, 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 in purple garments but, but filled with iniquity. See, that John is intentionally drawing a contrast that the old creation is passing away and a new creation is coming. Then he said to me in verse 9, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This marriage supper, uh, again, it speaks, of course, of of Jewish tradition, but it is is a a feast that is prefigured. It is talked about, again, in Old Testament prophetic literature. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Here's what the the, the prophet says. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine with choice pieces of marrow and and refined and aged wine. (laughs) On this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. Listen, this is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. These are the, the, the same language that we're hearing in Revelation. This is the act. This is the marriage supper. This is, the, this is fuel for hope. John is saying every anticipation that you have had in your hearts, that you've read in the scriptures, John says, I see a day when it's coming. Behold, these are the true words of God. In other words, everything that God has said is happening now. Every word that he's ever said about what will happen to his people right now, these that you, he's saying, what you're seeing right now, now these are the true words of God and John is beside himself in that moment and casts himself down to worship this angel (laughs) verse 10 says I fell to worship at his feet but he said to me do not do that he said get up boy he said I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This, this verse has been talked about a lot. We don't want to go into it too much today. But essentially, we just need to hear that the spirit of prophecy is all about Jesus. It's all about this. It's all about this aspect, this idea that, that we are waiting for our Savior, and he's absolutely coming. And everything he's ever promised, he's going to fulfill. So the, the prophecy is all about moving our hopes, moving our confidence, moving even our, our trusting behavior toward this, toward this. We are anticipating being with Christ. We are living now in anticipation of our future. But we aren't seeing the feast just yet. We're just, it's just we receive the announcement. We are hearing that the bride is ready and it's time for the feast. But if, if, if following tradition, if the bride is ready and it's time for the feast, there's something's got to happen first. What's got to happen? Huh? Sure, absolutely. What happens is somebody's got to shout. 
somebody's got to, if the bride's ready, the feast is ready, we're waiting on something. What are we waiting on? We're waiting on somebody to shout. We're waiting for verse 11 and through 16. Behold the bridegroom. Someone say, behold the bridegroom. Behold the bridegroom. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 6. Your answer, it might say 6, 5. 25 and verse 6 tells us that at the midnight hour, a cry goes forth. Behold the bridegroom. Then the bridegroom would come with his attendants to bring the bride and the whole party back to his house. Jesus is coming to do just that. But the story includes in Revelation, as it must, that when the bridegroom comes for his bride, he's also going to deal with everything that has been harassing and making war against his bride. He's coming. Because somebody's been messing with his gal. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. That doesn't just mean, in in Greek, true means it aligns correctly with reality. In Hebrew, true means reliable. He's coming, and you can count on it. You can count on him. Someone say you can count on him. His rider is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. The beast did his best to have a little crown, a little diadem on each of his horns. But this, but this one has many, many. This, these are ruling crowns. This distinguishes his rule from any pretender. And he has a name on him which no one knows except himself. Which means I don't know it either and I'm not going to tell you. He is, he is clothed with a... Now, this is where you, I think you should listen carefully. There's some ways to approach this, but I'm going to suggest perhaps a unique one today. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That word dipped is similar to the word sprinkled. That, and, if, and when things were dipped or sprinkled, this speaks of in, in, the, in the Old Testament, this speaks of hyssop, H. Y-S-F. Hyssop. Hyssop was a branch that they would dip into blood, and it was used to apply the blood of a lamb in an atoning way. In Exodus chapter 12, this is one of the first times we see this. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the, to the, lint, to the, the lintel and the doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel on the doorpost. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer, not allow the destroyer to come to you or to your houses to smite you. I believe many commentators read this and they, they, they're, they're seeing versions of Isaiah 63 of where God talks about vengeance and executing vengeance on the nations and, and his garments are stained with blood. This isn't about a garment. This, in this, I believe it's, it's being changed. This is not a Messiah whose garments are stained in blood. This is about a Messiah whose the, the blood that's on his robe is his. You see, this is a redeemer 
coming for the redeemed. This is a redeemer coming for those he's already redeemed. He's coming. His, his, it's his own shed blood that, that has purchased this bride, that has redeemed her, that has covered her. The conquering rider arrives in a garment dipped in his own blood. Verse 14, we'll talk about this in a minute. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him. Here's his wedding party. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. The death by which he conquers is his own. Do not under- underestimate the, the eternal significance of the cross. After the cross... God didn't have to do anything else. That was the victory. The lion is the lamb. He's already won it. The victory was already secured. Remember, we read this in Revelation 4 and 5. When they were mourning about no one being able to open the the scroll with the seals, they said, the lion of Judah has overcome, and there was a lamb who had been slain. The, 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 The lamb being slain, giving of his life, that is, was, and always will be the victory. That, it was that which, so the word of God here is the gospel, the proclamation that evil has been overthrown and that sin has been atoned for. The truth and proclamation of the gospel itself causes the downfall of all systems, rulers, and persons empowered by sin. The curse of sin is broken. The power of sin is broken. The dominion of the devil is overthrown by the sacrifice of Christ. He's not, it's not like the cross wasn't good enough, so now he's coming back with, a, with an AK-47 to really finish the job. No, the cross was more than enough. It, the cross is the instrument by which God has overcome everything contrary, every evil, every disease, every satanic influence was defeated. He mocked it in, in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He made a fool of those things by triumphing over them on the cross. His victory belongs to Christ alone, and his victory was already achieved. See, this is important because the the one who's coming for us is not a stranger. The one who's coming for us, although depicted in apocalyptic imagery, he intends to tell us that at the end of all things, we will not meet a stranger or a newcomer, but we will meet one that we know. It is a return and a reunion, a wedding celebration after a long engagement. This is not the arrival of an unknown one. We are awaited by the one who has already made himself known in the the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth and has made everything different by his appearing. Verse 16 says this, And on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Would you say it with me? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> Somebody say the King is coming. If I, if I had a really cool choir and instruments, I'd, we'd sing this. But let me, just, let me just, just listen, please. The King is coming. I can hear the trumpets sounding. And soon I'll, his face I'll see. 
The king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God. He's coming for me. Happy faces line the hallways. Those whose lives have been redeemed. Broken homes that he has mended. Those from prison he has freed. Little children and the aged, hand in hand, stand all aglow, who were crippled, broken, ruined, clad in garments white as snow. I can hear the chariots rumble. I can see the marching throng. The flurry of God's trumpets spells the end of sin and wrong. Regal robes are now unfolding. Heaven's grandstands all in place. Heaven's choir now assembled. Start to sing Amazing Grace. Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. I just heard the trumpet sounding, and now his face I see. Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God, he is coming for me. But before we leave, (laughs) he has to settle a few things. The bridegroom's victory begins. Look here in verse 17. And I saw... An angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come and assemble for the great supper of God. This is a different supper. Uh, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the mighty flesh uh, of men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of men, both free and slaves and small and great. You think, what? That's a horrible, gross figure. Yeah, it absolutely is. But the, the, the image is here that, these, that birds are scavengers. That's their assignment in creation, right? They eat all the junk. The image is here of a, of a battlefield where the, the, where the things that are left aren't worth the honor of burial. And, they're, and they're, it's, it's, it's an ash heap of history. And that's why the birds are feasting on it. It is, he, it is, it is God getting rid of and without, without honor all, all of the evil of history in this moment. Verses 17 through 20. Verses 17 through 21, they retell verse chapter 17 and verse 14. 17, 14 says, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He'll overcome them because of who He is. Then look at verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast who, and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Friends, history may, exam- may, may show us examples of triumph where right triumphs over wrong, but it will not exhaust the truth of revelation. Here, no battle is described. There is no, we read elsewhere that all these armies are, are, are gathered together, all these things, and then all of a sudden we see the king is coming and who's coming with him, and then all we read is, and he seizes the beast and the false prophet and casts them into the lake of fire. Where's the battle? Where's the, where's the you know, the, the three-hour extended version of Lord of the Rings here? You know, somehow the, Gandalf's got to come and save the day. What's, you know, we're, I, was, I, was, we, I was waiting for a fight. Nope, no battle is described because there couldn't be. The decisive battle was already won long ago. The end only makes that victory effective and manifest. Without a struggle, the powers of evil are taken and cast into the place of destruction, the lake of fire. The beast and the false prophet are seized and thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
The beast and the prophet are, we'll say it again, are spiritual principalities, real spiritual principalities operating under the direction of Satan himself. The beast has been throughout history the personification of secular power in opposition to the church. The false prophet represents the role of false religion in persuading people to worship anti-Christian power. Both of those principalities at this time are, are seized by Christ and thrown into a place of eternal destruction. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who ride on the, sat on the horse. That he's literally saying that by his word he overcame. Historically, rebellious, the rebellious human community, the kings of the earth and the peoples that follow him, they have met their judgment. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, he said that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe. Eternity is real. It's not up for a vote. It's just real. Eternity is real and is trying to get your attention. In the bridegroom's mission now, this is next week. In the bridegroom's mission, there now remains but one who must still meet a like fate. Satan himself, the architect of pain and suffering and persecution. And his demise is detailed at length next week. So here's what we know. The king is coming. And that wickedness will ultimately be brought to ruin. That is certain. Once again, if we come back to the first plane of interpretation, we're reading this as first century Christians. The first century believer is who was still facing possible persecution. He is now seeing that though the enemy's strength seems temporarily undiminished, the truth is that that with God in control, the future must inevitably yield an ultimate and complete victory for the Lamb and for those He has sealed. Ultimately, the future only has victory for the Lamb and those whom He has sealed. The King is coming. So how do we respond to this this morning, these magnificent eschatological landscapes, the hallelujahs, the wedding announcement, the bridegroom coming. How do we respond? Sometimes they, they say, how, are you, how does that apply to my life? You know, And it's so condescending. Forgive me for how that, you know, but it really is. Well, how does that apply to me? How does that fit into my life? <laughs> Who told you it was supposed to fit into your life? You're supposed to fit into this. The truth is, this is eternity, and you're a blip on the screen. You matter to God, but you better decide how you're going to fit into this. Well, I don't know how that applies to my life. Well, I'll tell you, eternity is calling. Will you pick up the phone? Blessed are those who are invited to the feast, but you've got to be hitched to be invited. You got, so the question is up to you and I whether or not you're going to get hitched and stay hitched. Whether you're going to hit, he's put a ring on it, but will, and will you, and 
And will you live like you're wearing that ring? You're going to be like, oh, I don't know about that. You're going to be taking that ring off and hiding like you've got something else better to do. How are you, are you going to live today like you've been betrothed? Are you going to live like you're waiting in anticipation of your future? Well, I don't know if I believe that. It's not up for a boat. How are you going to fit into this? Jesus said finally this in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13. Be on the alert for you don't know the day or the hour. There will come a time when a voice will cry out, behold the bridegroom. And he's going to be looking for his lady. Let's stand together, please. You got to get, you got to be hitched to be invited. Jesus told the story that people were invited to a great wedding ceremony, but then the master of the feast went and found people who weren't wearing wedding clothes, and he threw them out into darkness where there is gnashing of teeth. That means you don't get to show up to the wedding on your own terms. You don't get to choose what you're going to wear. I relate to God. God and I have our own thing. No, God has his thing. You say yes or no to it. We don't show up to the wedding party on our own terms, friends. And she was wearing white linen, the righteous acts that were prepared for. She was wearing garments that were provided for her. So the first thing we do this morning is we say yes to Jesus. No, he didn't get on his knees. Worse than that, he laid, he laid naked and physically destroyed on a cross and asked for your hand, asked for your life. When we say yes to Jesus, we are betrothed and then we live. We live in garments prepared for us. We live in righteous acts prepared for us, garments that were bought for us. We live in anticipation of that time and that future. The church is never more fruitful, more faithful, more effective, more fervent than when she remembers. She keeps her eye on eternity. The king is coming. Blessed are those who are ready. Oh, friend, my prayer today is that you will live ready for his return. Father in heaven, I pray in Jesus' name that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to live ready, to be ready. That you would help us today to live in anticipation of our future and in honor of it. This we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen. but sing it hallelujah 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 for the Lord God Almighty reign hallelujah 